Yeah, so Sarah's finishing up a few things with her job out in Lansing, and so her former boss was giving his farewell speech today, and uh, the legislature being what it is, that didn't wrap up till like six or something. So she'll be, she'll be back in the area uh, probably in an hour or so, but um, wasn't going to be able to make it back to the service. So, yep, she's doing fine, just uh, wrapping up a few of those things, and um, that should be all wrapped up by the end of the year. So, yep, thank you for asking. Let me set this right here. All right, Psalm 106. There are several uh, poetic devices in this chapter, rather than necessarily going through every last one of them. Uh, I'm going to highlight some of them for you that will hopefully help us to see some of the major themes in this psalm. And so we see in Psalm 106, um, verse 2, we see this idea that the psalmist asks, who can show forth all God's praise, all his praise? And I think that's getting at the idea of, you know, who's able to praise God enough? In verse 3, he says, they are blessed. How blessed are those who keep justice? What do, what do you think that might mean in, in this context of this psalm? Yeah, so keeping the law in Israel's day uh, there's a strong theme of how do you deal with the widow and the orphan and those who are in times of difficulty. God has laws like the law of gleaning and the law of leveret marriage and the law of how they're supposed to treat the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and all those sorts of things designed to protect those who would commonly be taken advantage of. And so that's kind of standing behind maybe an application or development of love your neighbor as yourself. And so the psalm starts out and sort of introduces these ideas. And then there's an expectation from the psalmist that he would someday see the prosperity of your chosen ones. Rejoice in the gladness of your nation, glory with your inheritance. But then there's this development where it sort of takes a sudden turn downward. So starting in verse 6, we have sinned like our fathers. And then he talks about what did their fathers do? Well, they did not understand your wonders. And then it starts talking about all the things that God did. He rebuked the Red Sea. What does that mean that God rebuked the Red Sea? Turn it back, right? Uh, we tend not to think of talking to forces of nature as being particularly effective, but if you're God, it is, right? And so Jesus says, be still, and the Sea of Galilee stops. And God said to the Red Sea, be parted. As people went through, the Egyptians got in the middle, and God did this, and it was drowned all of them. Uh, we see that in verse 11, the water is covered, or the Egyptians are drowned. Um, we see this idea of tempting God in verse 14. They tempted God in the desert. When it says tempted God, what, what kind of idea should we walk away from that with? Jonathan? Well, I'm looking at the story. When they were in the desert, they were constantly complaining, grumbling, all that. So I'm thinking that could be related to tempting God in the sense that they weren't satisfied and grateful for what God had done for them, and they weren't patient in looking 
Yeah, in other places it describes this as testing God. And we see sort of what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do, toss yourself off the temple, see if God catches you. It's God is powerful, or at least he said he is. Is he really? Let's see and find out. The difference between that and saying, God, will you deliver me, is, <coughs> excuse me, when you say, God, will you deliver me, you're confident that he has the power to do it, and you're asking for his help. When you do something foolish, and you're like, God, catch me on the way down, you're, you're saying, I don't really know if you can do this, so let's try it out. And so they're testing God, they're tempting God. It's not the way that we're tempted, as in that the God could be compelled to sin, but it's sort of seeing, exploring the limits of God's power in an unbelieving kind of way. Um, we see in verse 18 that God led them with the, uh, uh, well, I'm sorry, verse 18 is when there's fire and flame that God consumes those who offer uh, the wrong kind of incense, right? Uh, but right before that, the earth swallowed up those who questioned Moses. And we see in verse 23, Moses stood in the breach. What, what's going on in that verse? Moses stood in the breach. Yeah. Interceding, pleading uh, with God for the people. Moses, I'm sure, at moments was sorely tempted to say, it'd probably be easier if we started over, right? And yet he did not, and he appealed to the glory of God's name and the promises God had already made. Uh, there's uh, verse 28, they joined themselves to Baal Peor, which is both spiritually and physically they spiritually committed adultery against God through idolatry. They physically committed acts of adultery and immorality in worship of the God and with the people of the, of the Canaanites. Um, and then that led to, for example, verse 38. They shed innocent blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Quick aside... If you look at the reasons that people commit abortions in the United States, the stated reason that is said why they do it is because it's for the life of the mother. And there are, admittedly, extraordinarily difficult circumstances where, from a doctor's perspective, it could go terribly. We might lose the mom or the baby or both, right? The reality is those are a very small fraction of the, of the situations in which abortion is recommended. If you look at one of the leading places that recommends abortions, the Guttmacher Institute advocates for it, tries to get legislation passed in favor of it, they, upwards of 80%, probably closer to the low 90s percentage-wise, of women who say they had abortion, it's for one of three or four reasons. Bad timing, unstable relationship, interferes with my goals, didn't feel like I was ready. When we sacrifice the innocent for the gods of success and pleasure, there's a lot of parallels between what the Israelites did and what our nation is doing today, which should be sobering and, and concerning. All right, back to the, back to the text here. Um, played the harlot, verse 39, both spiritually and physically, as we already talked about. 
Uh, verse 40, when it says the anger of the Lord was kindled, what's sort of the imagery that's going on there? What does it mean to kindle something? What's kindling? Yeah, fire. Sometimes we're talking about the wood that's the beginnings of the fire when it first springs up. In this case, God's anger is stirred up against His people. Verse 43 is really sad. They sank down in their iniquity. Kind of reminds us of that cycle in Judges. God delivers. They sin. They have things go terribly for a while as God judges them. And then they cry out to God. God sends a judge to deliver them. And then they go back to their sin over and over and over again. And in the case of particularly the northern tribes of Israel, it's just sort of like this downward spiral. It gets worse and worse for the most part with a few bright spots, but hardly any in the northern kingdom and not many more in the southern kingdom. Uh, verse 45, God remembered his covenant. He relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then verse 47, the imagery, gather us from among the nations. Probably two different ways we could see this one, uh, the picture that stands behind this. What would be one? When Jesus looks and sees the people scattered like sheep without a shepherd, it's compassion and wanting to gather them like those who are wandering, right? There's another image of gathering that has to do with what in the New Testament and also in the Old Right? But what picture is, is sometimes associated with that? Well, right, right. But like, um, what picture from agriculture does he use to illustrate? Bringing in the sheep, gathering grain, burning weeds, all that sort of thing, right? And so, what's that? Harvest, Harvest right. So I think verse 47 is either the picture of gathering wandering sheep, or of gathering in grain that's ready for harvest. His idea is gather us from among the nations. And then verse 48, blessed be God from everlasting, everlasting. Where does everlasting start? Where does everlasting end? His point is this is forever. So some repeated thoughts that I think we see throughout this are that God's loyalty is everlasting. And um, I saw this. I don't know, two days, a day, two days ago on Facebook. And uh, it's not particularly profound, but it captures the sense of this psalm. God said to do blank. In the background, what does the narrative say? They didn't. That pretty much sums up the history of Israel. God said to, they didn't. God said to, they didn't. What I want to show you from this psalm... Uh, just sort of going tying these ideas together, is that this psalm is calling us to praise God for His loyalty to faithless idolaters who or when they confess their sin. There's faithless idolaters, but those who confess their sin, God demonstrates loyalty particularly to them, but even to those who don't deserve it all throughout this psalm. First of all, we see that God is loyal for Himself to His faithless people. Why do I say that we're supposed to praise God, because verse 1 says, praise the Lord. And then give thanks to the Lord. And then it gives a reason, His loving kindness is everlasting. That word loving kindness there is talking about God's covenant loyalty. He has everlasting loyalty that is characterized by righteousness. 
and that is illustrated or should be illustrated in those who demonstrate justice and practice righteousness to the extent that it mirrors God's character, verse 3. Why does God save His people in this psalm? Well, we see in verse 8, He saved them for the sake of His name that He might make His power known. Verse 10, He saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. God does not do all the things that He does throughout the Bible because we're so amazing. God does all the things that He does for us throughout the Bible because we're not, but He shows kindness to us anyway. And so, without in any way saying, uh, there's, a, there's a danger here for us. If we say that we're sinners, sometimes that trends towards saying, well, people are worthless. And we're not saying people are worthless because they're made in God's image. However broken that is, they're still in God's image. But what we're saying is, it's not like you're at the playground and we're picking teams and God says, I want you on my team because you are the best. He's picking the kid that gets picked last not so the kid gets the credit, but so that he can show his power. And that's true of Israel, it's true of us. First uh, Corinthians, Paul says, who, why did you get picked? And the Corinthians, who were really proud, must have been thrilled when Paul wrote to them and said, hey, God picked you because you are dumb and poor and not important. They're like, we're amazing. Paul's like, nope. God picked Israel because they were small and weak and so He could show His power in them. God picked people in the church because most of them were not anything remarkable. God did it for the sake of His own name. And so then at the very tail end of the psalm, it comes back to this idea of blessing God, verse 44, because of His forgiveness despite these cycles of rebellion. God looked on their distress. God heard their cry. God remembered His covenant for their sake. He relented according to the greatness of His loving kindness. The word relented there is one that the open theists like to grab and you know have a fun day with. And they're like, look, God didn't know it was going to happen. He just got taken by surprise. He changed His mind. No, there's implied conditional that we see, for example, in the story of Jonah and Nineveh, which is, if you repent, I will spare you. Jonah didn't like that if. Jonah didn't want that if. Jonah was just like, hey guys, you're all going to burn. And I get to watch. I'm going to sit here under my plant and watch it happen. And God frustrated Jonah's plans because when the people heard the message of repentance, they repented. Or rather, even not even a message of repentance, just this judgment is going to fall. The people's response was repentance. And being pagan people, they got carried away. They're like, we're going to put sackcloth on the king and on the people and on the camels and the donkeys and the sheep. And let's just cover the whole city in sackcloth and ashes everywhere and get our bases covered. Kind of like the Philistines were like, let's make images of all the things that God's doing to give us plagues when the Ark of the Covenant's wandering around Philistia. Let's make sure we got our bases covered. But they had a right response to God's warning. And Jonah was like, God, you just got to, bring judgment down on them anyway. God relenting when people have a response of repentance is not a sign of weakness, forgetfulness, lack of awareness on God's part. It's a sign of God's mercy when we don't deserve it. Kind of parallel Second Peter 3, when it says people see God not bringing a final judgment on the world, and they say, can't really do it, must have forgotten about it, fell off his to-do list, 
And we look at it and we say, no, God is showing you mercy until he saved everybody that he means to save in this entire world. And then the judgment is going to fall. So instead of saying, look at what a weak and forgetful God you serve, people should take warning from that because look at the Canaanites, right? 400 years or at least four generations, they go in on their sin and on their, in their sin and on in their sin. And then the Israelites come back and God says, your time's up to the Canaanites. And so God relents according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He makes promises to his people. He shows mercy on sinners, including sometimes his people. Verse 46, he made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. And so this psalm ends with this plea of, Save us, Lord, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And that's, I think, an important part of a right plea for God's deliverance. Not, let us off the hook because we don't like the punishment that we deserve for going our own way, but God, restore us to a right relationship with you so that people will be amazed at what you've done. The fact that you save people who didn't deserve it, who can now tell that the God who saved them is amazing and awesome and wonderful and you should believe in him too, that's sort of what's standing behind here, I think, verse 47. And then he closes with, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, let all the people say amen. But this big part in the middle is this idea that you have to confess your wandering from God. We see this in verse 4. Remember me, visit me, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones. Verse 6, this acknowledgement, we have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Um, how many of you, when you were little, uh, got sent to your room or knew that you were going to get disciplined in some way, and you sort of hurriedly tried to apologize for what you'd done because you didn't want the consequences? We typically, all of us at some point or another, do that. But this is not a, like a politician kind of apology. It's not a, I got caught committing adultery and it makes me look bad, so let's do a PR spin, kind of do a half-hearted apology, I'm sorry, and then go on doing what we were doing before. This is an acknowledgement, I have sinned against God, sinning against God is wicked, sinning against God uh, drags his name through the mud, sinning against God is despicable, all those sorts of ideas. To the extent we genuinely acknowledge our sin and call it sin, that's when God's forgiveness can be truly found. What we tend to want to do is make excuses. Everybody does this. It's only human. I didn't lie. I bit the truth. I didn't commit adultery. Men will be men. Boys will be boys. I didn't Steal, I just, you know, adjusted some numbers, borrowed it for longer than I meant to. Like, we, we try to make our sin not a big deal. And verse 6 is, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have behaved wickedly. We should not have this response just to get out of trouble. 
verses 11 to 13 are fascinating to me. God does all these amazing things in Egypt. They rebelled by the sea, verse 7. God saves them. God rebukes the Red Sea. God leads them through the wilderness. He saves them from the Egyptians. When he does all these things, verse 12, then they believed his words, they sang his praise. I think Miriam probably genuinely did it. I think a lot of the, other, the rest of the people were kind of glad to be saved from the Egyptians. But verse 13 is pretty telling. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. I forget the exact time period from crossing the Red Sea to the first complaint, but it wasn't all that long. And the kids were complaining about supper the other night. I said, by the way, have you heard of the Israelites? <laughs> and we joke about it a little bit, but if God took it seriously enough that their complaining about food was ultimately a complaint against God and his goodness... Um, we would do well to remember that even really simple things that we tend to complain about are ultimately complaints against God and not the people or circumstances around us. Quick aside on that, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do to all the glory of God, we like, or whatever you do. And God's like, when you eat or drink, or whatever you do. Quick aside, that one's free. Um, they're not confessing just to get out of trouble. But look at all the different forms that sin comes in. Lust or greed, verse 14. They craved in the wilderness. So he gave them what they wanted, but sent a wasting disease among them, verses 14 and 15. How about envy, verse 16. They became envious of Moses in the camp. Hey, Moses, why are you in charge? Why not me? Why not that guy over there? Dathan and Abiram get swallowed up. The guys who offer false incense get burned to death. So lust and greed, envy. There's idolatry in verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. They exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. Set that verse alongside Nebuchadnezzar and God's judgment on him. And Romans 1, it's a really fascinating parallel between those three passages. They forgot God, the one who had done wonders. So what did God say? I'm going to destroy them, then Moses intercedes. So there's lust and greed, there's envy, there's idolatry, there's discontentment. They despise the pleasant land. God says, hey, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. These people have been taking care of it for 400 years. There's vineyards, there's flocks, there's cities, there's all these sorts of things. They've been kind of getting it ready for you. And now you're here, and they're like, yeah, we don't really want it. The God who did plagues to bring down the mightiest nation on the earth and who led us through the desert, gave us water and food for a whole bunch of people. These guys are kind of tall. And they have an army. And yeah, we don't want to go into the land. They complain. They express discontent. God said he would cast them down in the wilderness. He would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. Uh, people argue about how many people came out of the land of Egypt, right? 
So the low end is probably 20,000 and the conservative number if you take everything in the trying to blink on the, the, the Hebrew edition of the Old Testament is in the ballpark of 2 million. If we're talking the low end, and let's just say half of them died, 10,000 over 40 years, that's a couple of funerals a day. 2 million over 40 years is like dozens of funerals a day. So when it says God would cast them down in the wilderness, this was not a minor thing. This was God stacking up corpses in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So lust and greed, envy, idolatry, discontentment. Uh, immorality, verse uh, 30. Phineas has to come up and interpose. Phineas stabbing a man and a woman in the act of immorality is what stops the plague that God's sending on them in judgment. We say that seems really harsh. It was. And what they were doing was really bad, and God took it very seriously. And verse 31, this is so significant, it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. That's the kind of language that describes Abraham's faith toward God in Romans. And this man gets that description because he grabs a spear and says, we're done with this. So there's immorality. There's complaining again in verse 32. The waters of Meribah, they're rebellious against his spirit. Uh, even Moses gets led into the complaining and says, all right, God... Let's, uh, let's strike this rock and see what you're going to do. And Moses gets led away into the testing God. There's pagan alliances in verse 34. They get into the land, finally, their, their children get into the land. The rest of them are dead in the wilderness. And God said, wipe out the nations so that they don't lead you back into idolatry. And what do they do? They're like, mm, but we could use some servants. Um, maybe they're not all that bad. And through failing to consult God and just general laziness and inattention to what God had called them to do, they let the nations remain in the land and the nations in the land led them astray into sin. And not just minor sin. More idolatry, verse 37, child sacrifice, to the extent that the land was polluted with the blood. There's a fascinating phrase in Isaiah or Ezekiel is basically like the land like spewed them out because of all the blood they poured into the ground. They became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he abhorred his inheritance. He rejects them. You would think, all right, now they're going to wake up. Now they're going to turn back to God. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations. Those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. They were subdued. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel. And they sank down in their iniquity. When you and I confess turning away from God, when we first come to God in repentance, we need to acknowledge that all of, some of all of these sins in this list that I just read off to you characterize our lives apart from God. Lust and greed, envy, idolatry, discontentment, immorality, complaining, pagan alliances, worse idolatry, ignoring God's discipline. The only path 
to finding God's mercy in the long run is confessing sin and turning away from it. Because God is a God who is willing and ready to forgive those who come before Him and confess their sin. But God is not okay with you coming before Him and saying, I'm basically a good person and I need a little bit of Jesus to make my mostly great life a little better. Because the reality is, as much as we lie to ourselves, our lives apart from God are not great. We are lonely, we are miserable, we are bent after pursuing things that Isaiah describes it as pouring water into broken containers. Um, Ezekiel describes it as dead bones. Like There's all of these images in the Old Testament that are like, describe the stupidity of going our own way and the emptiness of it. And, and sometimes we're just so blind and stubborn in our sin that we don't see that God is holding out life and peace. It's like Thanksgiving dinner or going around after your dog in the backyard and eating what he leaves behind. We're like, nope, this is clearly better. What God requires of us costs us all the things that we love, but they're worthless to begin with. And what God gives us is wonderful forgiveness. And God calls this people Israel out for himself. And they go their own way, and they go their own way, and they go their own way. And this psalmist is saying, but look, God was patient with them this whole way. And whenever they turned back to them, and sometimes all these times they didn't deserve it, God delivered them and God helped them. So praise God that he is that kind of God. And if you are one that turns away and wanders away and is faithless to God, and we see that in Second Timothy, it says, it talks about this idea of if we are faithless, God remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. John says in 1 John, if anyone says he doesn't have any sin, he's a liar. The idea is not that we never sin. The idea is we should want sin less and less we should be more and more ready to confess that sin and we should keep coming back to a God who is loyal and faithfully loving according to his promises to sinners who come back to him. So, Psalm 106, praise God for loyalty to faithless idolaters who confess their sin. Let's uh, pause there and we'll look at our prayer request together.